episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and we are talking today about S5, the Affordable Heat Act. And I bet you're wondering who we're talking with. We are talking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Olga. And happy to welcome to the show Representative Kathleen James, who uh, serves Bennington 4 District, which is Sandgate, Manchester, Arlington, and Sunderland, I believe. Most Sunderland. Some of Sunderland. So, so I was wondering, I was looking at the map, and I'm like, that looks like it's, you know, kind of cut in half there. And you also serve on the House Committee on General and Housing. That's right. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thanks, Olga. As I mentioned, we are talking about S5, the Affordable Heat Act, which is currently in the Committee on Environment and Energy. Thank you. I just realized I forgot to put it on my note cards. That's what we're here for. (laughs) We would have been looking for a while. And it is designed to establish a a clean heat standard uh, to help reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that Vermont produces from its thermal sector, so heating homes. And I think it's fair to say that S5 is sort of the next stage of the Vermont of Vermont's Global Warming Solutions Act that we passed a few, a few years ago. Yeah, so we passed the Global Warming Solutions Act and that created a climate council whose job it was to figure out how we were going to meet our benchmarks targets that we had put into statute. And the Climate Council had a number of recommendations, but this was essentially one of their top recommendations. And I think greenhouse gases are very important to reduce, but I also, um, and Kathleen's going to talk more about that and more eloquently than I can. But in the midst of this bill, we had quite a summer in fuel oil prices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I heat my own home with oil and my prices for my pre-buy, you know, went up in really a terrifying way. And in the midst of that, you know, war in Ukraine, pandemic, supply chain, all those things, it's getting emails from constituents. Can you please like do something about the price of oil? And I was like, well, <laughs> it's I cannot control price gouging. I cannot control price gouging by multinational corporations as much as I would like to here in the tiny state of Vermont. I cannot do anything about global political instability in either the Middle East or Ukraine. But what I can do is make sure that Vermont is doing its very best to support Vermonters in moving away from such incredibly instably priced fuel sources such as oil. And so that, you know, insulate, making sure that we are supporting Vermonters to insulate, to transition, to be like resilient to whatever comes next and not be left behind is where like my focus is on the Affordable Heat Act. But Kathleen James is like, has many more better words to say about it all than I do. I don't know about that. That kind of puts the pressure on. But <laughs> yeah, I, as you were explaining the the bill, Olga, I, I was having the exact same thought as Emily is having, which is that, you know, the main impetus behind the clean heat standard um, or the affordable heat standard is, of course, to put in place a mechanism that will help Vermont reach its, you know, now statutory mandated emissions 
reductions targets. So that's one of the why, one of the whys behind the bill. But the most important why behind the bill, and, and when you read the bill, you'll see how much of it is dedicated to this larger and deeper and in some ways more profound economic shift that the world is undergoing right now. And so if you want to, you know, if you want to put this bill in context, you know, I get emails from constituents from time to time saying, you know, if Vermont reduced its emissions to zero tomorrow, it still wouldn't make, you know, much of an impact on on global climate change. And correct, and absolutely not the point. So when you think about the scope and scale and speed of the global shift that's happening right now from away from fossil fuels toward renewable energy, that's a global market shift that is far, far beyond the scope of anything that, that Vermont can and will do. But Vermonters are going to pay the price for that. And they already are paying the price for that. So governments all over the world, including the United States, states, provinces, are all moving rapidly to transition away from fossil fuels in the face of, you know, increasingly dire impacts. And anybody who's read the latest report from the UN knows that, you know, things are starting to shift around the world, but we're facing some of our last chances to avoid some of the scariest impacts of climate change. And that's, that's real. Um, that's not something that's happening halfway around the world. We can see the weather changing here in Vermont with more severe and increasingly frequent storms and flooding. We can see the impact on our economy as for just for example, the, you know, the ski industry shifts and there, you know, a lot of important industries that's it's just an easy example we can watch, you know, the impact on Vermonters health and on public health as we see a rise in tick borne illnesses. And so climate change, climate change is here. What can we do to help Vermonters with the transition? That is the story behind this bill. And what the clean heat standard does is, I think importantly, what it doesn't do, and I could repeat this all day long, is it does not force, require, or mandate any Vermonter to do anything. And we could just keep repeating that all day long if, if we wanted to. So if you don't want heat pumps, if you do not want to weatherize your home, if you don't want to get a, a solar powered hot water heater, there's absolutely nothing in this bill that requires Vermonters to do anything. What it does do is set up, set up a system that will require fossil fuel dealers to rack up credits. That's, I think, the easiest way to describe it. So if you're a company, large or small, that imports and sells fossil fuel, um, imports fossil fuel into Vermont, you're going to be required to earn a certain number of credits. And there are a whole bunch of ways you can earn those credits. The most important way you can earn the credits is that you can deliver clean heat measures to Vermonters. So in other words, offer affordably priced, incentivized weatherization lower cost heat pumps, advanced wood heat to your customers. Offer, not require <laughs> for the customers. And there are other ways that the um, fuel dealers can do this. They can, they can uh, do that work themselves so they can expand and diversify their business model by getting into weatherizing or starting to 
sell maybe heat pumps alongside, you know, whatever services they offer right now. They can do that work themselves, which is a smart way, I think, for business to start transitioning itself uh, for the future. They can subcontract with partners to do that work. They can buy the credits. Or um, if the bill passes, there's going to be what's called a default delivery agent set up as a statewide entity. I don't know exactly what that will look like. Let's toss out Efficiency Vermont as an example. So they could also work with an Efficiency Vermont style statewide entity that's going to have a a lot of those credits available. And um, so folks could call you know, their fuel dealer, or they could call whatever this entity is going to be and say, hey, I'd like to weatherize my home. The vast majority of credits, or I guess 60% of them, are required to be delivered to low and moderate income Vermonters. So the upshot of this bill is going to be that low and moderate income Vermonters in particular, but all Vermonters are going to have a lot more options for switching to clean heat and a lot more affordable options. I, you know, there's so many things that I appreciate about this model. You know, when I think about that, we've had sort of a credit, clean electricity credit system for our power industry for quite a while. And I see how really powerfully Green Mountain Power and other electric companies have moved into like thinking about resilient grids and electrical storage and supporting Vermonters to be thinking differently about how they get electricity. And how those companies wouldn't necessarily have done that if not for these systems that we set up to make it both easier for them, but also to ask them to take responsibility for some of what they're doing. The other thing I love about it is that, you know, fuel dealers already know a lot about heating homes. And so by asking those existing companies to be making the transition, like we're using an existing workforce and we are sort of trusting in the knowledge of some folks that might be, you know, using the fuel source that was sort of the relevant fuel source in the in their day and maybe now, but asking them to be thinking those things through. It's wild to be having this conversation, like looking out the window of my office, which, you know, regular happy hour listeners are aware is like, you know, a major distraction for me, this little window <laughs> with the birds and the trees and such. But there are like three trees that are just like massively down in my yard from a single snowstorm when I look out the window. You know, I think we are all, and especially talking to the farmers around here in Wyndham County, we are all just feeling the impacts right now and need to be thinking differently about how we do what we do, how we do it. And our homes are, our housing stock here is old and our homes are old and it is Whatever income level you are at, unless you're really at the very top, I think it's hard for folks to figure out how to make their homes work. And I think the more people who are at the table solving these problems, the better. One thing that's really interesting about this whole process, from my perspective, is sort of who's at the table and who's not. Mm. You know, the Climate Council, and we've talked to... um, Abby Course about the Climate Council and sort of diversity and equity work before on the happy hour. If anyone wants to go into the little way back Montpelier happy hour machine and do that. They thought a lot about low-income Vermonters and global majority Vermonters. And I think it's really interesting that like as this bill has evolved over all these years, the real interest on the part of the legislature to make sure that fuel dealers are part of the conversation that like we know that people who work for fuel dealing companies are, you know, 
are neighbors and they need jobs and, you know, they can be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of those, Olga, before we went on the show, you said you talked to your neighbors. Um, You said at town meeting, like this was the major topic. Yeah. And a lot of the reason that this was the major topic at many town meetings is because almost everyone in Vermont has a fuel dealer. Yeah. And fuel dealers are putting lobbying material with like some pretty significant misinformation into all of their customer envelopes. So as everyone bought fuel this year from their fuel dealers, they all got some lobbying letters from their fuel dealers. And I happened to buy my fuel from a Massachusetts dealer. I'm very sorry, Vermont fuel dealers. (laughs) Moved into the house. There was an automatic pre-buy setup and they delivered oil and we hadn't ordered it. So they give it to us at this huge discount. And ever since then, we have been hanging out with this Massachusetts company. And so I didn't get the letter. I I got a little slip of paper um, in with one of my, you know, one of the receipts that gets mailed to me after the automatic delivery. And mine said, if the bill passed, totally paraphrasing here so i'm sorry nidos if i get it wrong if the if the bill passes it could add as much as 70 cents to to a gallon of oil which as i understand it came from a state source it's not a source that nidos made up that 70 cents per gallon yeah i'm happy to happy to talk about that one a little bit so i got the letter too uh the that testimony or that number um, came from Agency of Natural Resources Secretary um, Julie Moore in testimony that she gave on on the Senate side, and it's not surprising that you know the fuel dealers lobbying campaign seized on that number. Secretary Moore said herself, <laughs> "This is what's so frustrating about that number." Um, said herself when presenting the number that this was a back of the envelope estimate and that it might very well be wrong. So, you know, to put that number in context and to talk a little bit, I think about how the bill has shifted and changed. There has been since rebutting testimony indicating that Secretary Moore's uh, back of the envelope estimate was in fact wrong. Couple things. First of all, we've already talked about the fact that everybody's, a lot of folks, fuel prices went up $2 um, over the past year, and that's something that we have nothing in place to help folks address at all. Other states have enacted legislation similar to the clean heat standard for transportation, admittedly. Um, Oregon is a state that's done something similar and saw a very minimal impact on fuel prices. Um, I think it was maybe 10 cents a gallon. But in a, some ways, the, you know, Secretary Moore's inaccurate back-of-the-envelope estimate and what's happened in other states doesn't matter a whole lot um, because the bill has built into it at this point some very significant uh, mechanisms to make sure that we're keeping a really close eye on any impact in fuel prices that would could you know could happen as a result of this bill. So if fuel dealers are offering a lot more affordable and low-cost you know, clean heat measures to their customers, what's that going to cost them? And will they um, pass that price along in the form of raising fuel? So that's a, that's a legit argument, right? That's a legitimate discussion we need to have. And that's why, yeah, that's that's what a lot of people were concerned of at town meeting was how, how is, 
how is enacting this act going to get passed on to the consumer? Yeah. So we've already talked about we've already talked about the fact that a huge swath of the of Vermonters will be eligible for a lot lower cost ways to switch if they want to. So what about the price of fuel? One thing that's built into the bill right now is a really robust checkback mechanism. So what that includes is, uh, I think, two or three significant reports um, back to the legislature, and then the, the whole thing will come back for a vote. So what I mean by that is, if this bill passes this year in 2023, the public, and this is a really, this is an unusual step. It doesn't usually work this way. Mm-hmm. The Public Utilities Commission will be required to spend the next uh, two years basically designing and building the entire program, like writing all the rules, creating, uh, like building the program from, from the ground up, right? So that will include uh, a lot of public hearings. It will include public comment. Fuel dealers will be at the table um, for the design of those rules. Low-income and moderate-income folks are required to be, you know, will be represented in all of those conversations. So everybody who's going to be impacted is going to be at the table to write those rules, and then plus the public hearings. That entire body of work, including these reports back to the legislature, and a really Vermont-specific cost-benefit analysis. So exactly how will this impact fuel prices? What savings will Vermonters see? That is all going to come back to the legislature in January 2025, and the program won't go into effect until June 2025, a.k.a. the legislature has an entire session in which to modify the bill and give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. So, so there, when I hear that, the, Kathleen, yeah. I like, I, so I, when I hear that, I think, okay, that's really reassuring for some folks who are like freaked out by not knowing what the numbers are. And then I have a whole bunch of constituents who are freaked out that we're not acting fast enough. And so I want to sort of sh- make sort, sure that we're sharing both sides of this conversation is that anything we do even if it goes into law immediately, always has a frustratingly long amount of time before anything can be implemented because people need to actually do the work to make it happen. So, you know, we passed the child tax credit. It took a year before people started getting the tax credit. And that's just like, you know, money, right? Like we create a new program. Sometimes it takes two years before that gets off the ground, even though the law goes into effect immediately. And so what I really, really like about this mechanism as it came out of the Senate is it like manages to actually have its cake and eat it too, right? We are absolutely accepting that like things take a little bit of time to get off the ground, even if they're effective immediately. And so we use all of that setup time to make sure that we're doing things the way we want to be doing them and to have that check back. So sometimes in the legislature, we just create studies and then we study the thing and then the thing comes back to us and then we decide if we want to make a law or not. And that's great, but, you know, sometimes it's like moving at this, you know, slower than molasses. And then sometimes we implement things and we don't have this check back in the middle, though we still have to wait two years for anything to really happen. And so I love that we used that like set up rulemaking period as a period of studying because it really, I 
feel like acknowledges the limitations of government and government speed while like making sure that we know what we are doing before we do it. And that's like, I love that. That's a good point. Um, and, and I think that it's important for folks to understand that the check back period that the Senate added or the, the check back from the legislature actually wouldn't, do, it doesn't push back the date of the bill. I love that. Yeah. So it, the, it would still, I mean, what pushed back the date of the bill was, you know, last year's veto. Yes. Um, so, but this, the, the standard would still go into effect in 2026, um, assuming that the legislature, you know, kind of reapproves it in 2025. So that timeline doesn't change. And Emily, as you said, it is important to, to for folks to understand that always and still built into the, the bill is a gradual rollout of the credits to avoid, you know, to make it doable, right? Um, to make, to avoid shocking the market, to make sure fuel dealers can adjust, to make sure we have, you know, can try to ramp up our workforce if needed. And so um, the number of credits that fuel dealers will be required to rack up or retire has always raised over time. And that's actually a great, it's actually, a, I think, a, a useful tool for fuel dealers who, you know, could or should be, uh, or would want to be, I would think, planning how they're going to transition their business at a time of a global market shift with or without this bill. So knowing that you have to, uh, you know, that the times they are changing and that you're going to need to earn X number of credits by this year and that Y number of credits by this year and Z number of credits by this year is, uh, you know, I think a helpful planning tool. We have just about five minutes left before we need to hear some from some underwriters. I would love if we could just define credits quickly. Is it, will folks be getting credits for each household you help convert from say of a uh, number two heating oil or are you getting credits for like what exactly is that little bundle when you say credits mean i have that let's see here so you earn a credit the fuel dealers were earned credits for every clean heat activity that they deliver to vermonters and I had the page right here, but that includes weatherizing. It includes heat pumps. It includes advanced wood heat. It includes solar hot water heaters. And there are a few more things that I'm forgetting. I, I actually thought I had the list handy and uh, it's gone somewhere. I, I think that's I think that's a really helpful piece of detail. I also, you know, when we talk about diversifying sort of business activities, all of the fuel dealers around here, have, or most of them have moved into plumbing, mm. sort of acknowledging that like, it's a very similar skill set, right? You're dealing with pipes and people who deal with pipes. And so it's been really interesting to sort of see that happen as the trades in Vermont have shifted and the expertise needed for the trades has shifted. And people's expectations about sort of more stable employers has shifted, I think, a little bit. And so it's been interesting to know that, like, I can call my fuel dealer if I'm having a plumbing emergency as well. Mm -hmm. I found the list and there was one thing that I, I think is so cool. I left off a few things. So it's a, it's a wide range of clean heat measures. But 
One thing in, as the bill is currently structured, I hope this stays in there, is the replacement of a manufactured home with a high efficiency manufactured home. That's pretty cool. I, I noticed that, yes, as yeah. someone who lives in a manufactured home. <laughs> yeah, and the credits, the credits are worth more if the measure is more sustainable, and we can talk about that when we come back, but that's based on life cycle emissions. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. And on, on that note, we are going to hear from some underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. But stay tuned, Emily, Kathleen, and I will be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I'm speaking with Emily Kornheiser and Kathleen James, two representatives about S5, the Affordable Heat, Heat Act. Thank you. You got it. Yeah. You can always... Find the happy hour on BCTV, as well as wherever you find your podcasts. If you are looking for us on stations other than WVEW. And Emily, what do we need to remind people of? The views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively. And not the station, nor their employers, nor friends, nor kittens. Nor kittens. Who like to eat power plants? <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, before the, the break, we were talking about some of the, the nitty gritty of the Affordable Heat Act. And we were talking a little bit about what this might mean for consumers. And I'd love if we could run through some scenarios that just to help people understand like, okay, if they meant to go forward with, say, weatherization or a heat pump, what would that look like? And I, I realize the bill hasn't passed yet, so it could change, but at least the best information we have right now. The estimates I've seen are that over, over time, I think by 2030, Vermonters who take advantage of all the, you know, the, the much broader range of incentives and pricing that could be available through this act if it goes forward will save a total of $2 billion. So we're looking at potentially very, very significant savings um, for Vermonters as a result of the things that they're going to be able to do. And we also need to remember, too, that there's going to be a lot of federal money flowing into the state um, from the Inflation Reduction Act and the IIJA, the any. Anyway, infrastructure, infrastructure investment, investment, infrastructure, jobs act. Jobs act. Anyway, there's well a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of federal money coming, and um, it's going to be useful, I think, for us to have these sort of, basically, have a, a way in place for people to really start taking advantage of these credits because the credits would be stackable, right? So, if there's a credit you can get through our own Affordable Heat Act and there's a federal credit available, you could take advantage of both of those. So and maybe, I'm just to jump in, like, and maybe this is like even too geeky for your average happy hour listener, but that's a really important part of our work this year 
So in previous big, you know, last few years, federal packages and federal spending, it's been very clear, like the feds send us money and we get to spend it however we want with a whole bunch of rules in place that we have to navigate. So not really however we want. And we've done that. Or the feds spend a bunch of money and Vermont consumers have more money to spend. And then we get sort of revenue based on the, you know, extras of that spending. The IIJA and in some part, the Inflation Reduction Act money is not money that goes directly to the state of Vermont. It is credits at the federal level. It is money going directly to Vermont businesses at the federal level. And so what that means is it's like this massive shaping tool for the next stage of our economy. But the policy levers that we as a Vermont legislature have are a little more one step removed. And so what we're thinking about is, are there places that we already have tax credits or incentives in place that we might now be wasting money because it's just a drop in the bucket? Or are there places like this where we want to have more tax credits or incentives in place in order to magnify the impacts of the federal activities? And so that's like a really interesting part of some of our committee's work this year is to see how we can like most create like higher magnitude impacts from these federal activities with our state level activities. That's why it's great to be on a, on a panel with the chair of ways and means. I've got some, the energy action network is a, is a group that really specializes in sort of energy data and analysis. And they have created, um, they've got a really excellent FAQ on their website about the affordable heat act. And question number five, which I, I refer folks to all the time really walks through some sort of scenarios um, about how this bill could impact Vermonters. Mm. So I, I, I'll just run you through a couple of them. So we, we've got the Anderson family. <laughs> so the Anderson family, they're a low-income family and they live in an apartment and they pay their utilities bill for the apartment, but the property owner is responsible for the appliances. So their propane water heater dies. And this is like a worst case scenario that like so many Vermonters live in. Like yeah. you so are paying for the cost, but can't control the mm -hmm. machinery. Right. So okay. the propane water heater dies, but instead of replacing it with another propane water heater, the property owner calls up his local fuel dealer and <laughs> it turns out that there's a clean heat credit available. It's an incentive to lower the cost of that heat pump water heater, of a brand new heat pump water heater. And it's now cheaper for him to buy a heat pump water heater than it is to install a new propane water heater. So he puts that in instead and the Anderson family saves $500 a year on that cost to them. That's a and, good- And the landlord yeah. saves money on replacement for like, machinery in there. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Got another one if you want to do another one. Yeah, this is fun. Do they yeah. all have such silly names? Uh, the Bertrand family. I, I don't think Anderson is really not understanding what's silly about the Anderson family. Anyway, it's so generic. It's so generic that it's silly. Well, that's what I like a, about it. The letter A. Now we're going to go to now the letter doing B. Is the next one with a C? Yeah. The Bertrand okay. family. So the Bertrand family, they're, they're a middle income family. So they live in an average size home. They heat with uh, a fuel oil furnace. They, and this is something I hear a lot. 
they make too much to qualify mm -hmm. for free weatherization through the weatherization assistance program that supports our low-income Vermonters, right? They make too much to qualify for that help. Right here. But they don't make enough money to go ahead with weatherization on their own. So they, they don't qualify for help. They can't afford to weatherize on their own. But there's a lot of incentives available now through the Affordable Heat Act. So now the cost has come down to them and they can afford to weatherize their home. So they get an upfront incentive and they also are able to take advantage of the Weatherization Repayment Assistance Program, another program that they pay back in time over their electric bill. So overall, their fossil fuel use is reduced by 25%. Their fuel oil bill drops from 2,000 a winter to 1,500 a winter, and they save $500 a year in fuel costs. Okay, again, nothing that they were forced to do, just things are becoming more affordable for them. Can I reflect on this for a moment before you move on to the... Yeah, I mean, we can family. do more or we can... No, I want to I hear more. I love them. But I one thing that I notice, and maybe is, I don't know if it's a feature or a bug or correlation or causation, what's happening here. But I noticed that both families save $500, but the impact of $500 for a lower income family is a lot more than the impact of $500 for a middle income family. And I think that's appropriate. Like that's what a good progressively structured state program does. It makes sure that it's like setting its impacts where folks need it. So that might just be a coincidence and not a feature, but I like it so far. Continue on with the C family. The Cassidy's. Cassidy. <laughs> so the, the Cassidy's are a low-income family and they own a small home and their home is already very well insulated because they did qualify to have their home weatherized through the weatherization assistance program but they're still having a really hard time affording their propane bills. So their home is small, it's already been weatherized. So their heating contractor let them know that they could heat their whole house efficiently with heat pumps while leaving their furnace in as a backup, which I think addresses some questions folks have about heat pumps. Right, right. So right. they can leave their furnace in as a backup, but they can heat their whole home with heat pumps. They qualify for the incentives, they install the heat pumps. They save $1,000 a year in fuel oil. Sorry, propane. Nice. That's so cool. Okay. One other thing I've been thinking about, this is like, I'm I'm telling like a lot of very self-centered stories this morning. And I don't know. <laughs> that's okay. That's, I, that's usually my job. So. <laughs> okay, great. So one thing about this idea that there's going to be sort of like the statewide partner working on this and that my local fuel dealer will have these options available is so, you know, when the power went, we, I have this like very ancient wood stove in my basement that I don't understand why it's in my basement, but it's there. And it's like, my basement's like a basement basement. It's not mm -hmm. like a fun recreational basement, but it's enough to sort of heat the house if you're willing to like put wood in it every two hours. And so when the power went out for the last four days, that's what we were doing to heat the house. And I was like, well, if this like ancient wood stove that clearly doesn't work that well can heat the whole house, it's possible that like a nice new fancy wood stove that doesn't like emit stinky smoke into the atmosphere would heat the house even better. And I know that there are some sort of incentive somewhere for swapping out my wood stove because I've heard that in the legislature. <laughs> Maybe I should look into this for my own house. And I went looking on the internet and I've got to tell you, Kathleen James, I cannot figure out how much money it would cost me or how much money I would save 
to replace my like ancient wood stove that like hiccups smoky particulate into and, my community. and that's a big deal because if Emily is so good at bureaucracy and navigating bureaucracy that if she can't find it there is no hope for the rest of us and so <laughs> I feel very excited that like as part of this in addition to increasing incentives and creating mechanisms we're also just making it clearer and easier for folks to navigate the nightmare of some of these transitions that is huge because like I am not housing, you know, some of my friends are like really, you know, it's Vermont. So if some people are really into the building and the engineering and the clean, whatever, and I am not, I'm just living in this house. And so it's so exciting to know that like, there will be more systems in place to help me navigate all of this. Yeah. So how are we? Should we do the Diaz family? Yes. yes. I can't wait for the and Diaz I, family. Then I have a, a follow-up question. That's I'm great. also excited well, for one slightly less white name. So go yeah, for it, the, Kathleen. The Diaz, well, I like the Diaz family because it's so easy. So they're middle income. And just five years ago, they had a brand new fuel oil boiler installed. So it's new. It's only five years old. They want to keep it. So they check out switching from fuel oil to biodiesel made from recycled restaurant oil because of the Affordable Heat Act. Biodiesel is cheaper than fuel oil now. They keep their boiler. They pay less in fuel. Hmm. Cool. That's good. That's good. I Very heard a number of comments at town meeting about folks who were like, but I, it's like two years old, my boiler. I don't want to have to replace it. They don't have to. Nice. So since so this is a systems change and we are asking fuel dealers to make this system change. How are we going to support them in making this systems change? That's a great question. I already mentioned one important thing, which is that the credit market will be ramping up, right? On a predictable basis. So they're gonna know, I think 10, I think the credits are to be set on a 10 year schedule, right? So it's not gonna be like, okay, next year you need to earn 10% more credits, they will know on a 10-year schedule. And that schedule, and I wish I could find this in the bill quickly, but there are a lot of check back and sort of regulation mechanisms built into the bill. So there's a commission that's going to be set up, and I don't want to start frantically looking through my notes, but there's a commission uh, that'll be set up at the very beginning that's going to be basically in charge of the credits. So publishing this schedule, checking to see how our workforce is doing and keeping pace you know, with the rollout, keeping a very, very close eye on the impact of the credits on the fuel market and pricing for the fuel market. And the fuel dealers are gonna be strongly represented on that commission. So if fuel oil, I don't see anything in the bill right now that specific, specifically, you know, like, 10 people to provide technical support to fuel dealers, but it might be that I just haven't seen that in the bill, or that would be part of future conversations. If the fuel dealers are saying like, Hey, we're really having a hard time navigating this. Mm -hmm. Well, and you. you know, something else that I think is really important to name about supporting fuel dealers in this is like, this is what is happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And there have been, so many conversations and so much research about like Vermont constantly being left behind in whatever is happening in the world, right? Because our businesses are so small mm -hmm. and because we're so small. 
And occasionally that has benefited us as basically like the economy has looped around before and come back to us. But for the most part, that just means that we're often left behind and sort of subject to these national issues that we can't control. And so I think one of the really, one of the pieces that I have been trying to work on, and I think so many, like along with so many of my colleagues like Kathleen, is that given that our businesses are so small, how can we at the state level be supporting businesses to make really important transitions they need to be making so that they aren't left behind in the global marketplace. And this is one of those places, like it supports sort of the business planning that all of our businesses are gonna need to be making so that they're not left behind as multinationals make these shifts. You know, the biggest investors right now in clean energy are like multinational oil corporations because they see the writing on the wall. And so like, why should our tiny little oil companies be left behind or fuel dealers? Sorry, I'm on the oil side of the state. Kath, you're more on the gas side of the state, I guess. You know, it's interesting though, I talking about who's getting left behind. So who's getting left behind now? Well, right now, in terms of just Vermonters, the folks who can afford to weatherize, the folks who can afford to buy heat pumps, the Ford, the folks who can afford to buy, you know, a high efficiency, super expensive wood heating system are doing it. There's nothing yep. holding them back and they're all doing it. It's the rural and low income and marginalized Vermonters who are getting left behind, which is why this bill is so very, very specifically designed to target and help those folks. And in terms of our fuel companies, it's the bigger, more resourced fuel companies that are, you know, diversifying their business model and partnering with subcontractors and making this making this shift all on their own. And it's the small mom and pop folks that are struggling to do that. And so, you know, I think that this bill is designed to help with that. Talk to me, uh, Kathleen, this bill is going to set up two advisory commissions. One is is more of a, a technical advisory commission, but one is an equity advisory group. Talk to me about the, the role of, of that group, please. Yeah, I think it's going to play a really, really, really important role. And it's it's something that's really getting lost in the conversation. So Hmm. we've already talked about the fact that 60% of the credits need to be delivered to low and moderate income Vermonters. I think that's in terms of the residential part, that's I think really important. So that the equity advisory group is, would be created right away to make sure that when the clean heat standard is implemented, assuming this goes ahead, that those credits are delivered um, to low and moderate income Vermonters. And really most importantly, this will be right in law, this will be part of the bill, that Vermonters with low and moderate income are not negatively impacted in their ability to afford afford heating fuel. Mm -hmm. So it says it right here in the bill, at the centerpiece of the bill is a requirement to ensure as this rolls out that our low and moderate income folks are not negatively impacted in their ability to heat their homes. And so this equity group is going to have to, it's going to include like a wide range of folks who are going to be appointed to it, including people with, you know, lived experience. Fuel dealers will be on there, I believe. Sorry, I'm not looking at the list right now. But they're going to have to provide strategies for engaging low and moderate income Vermonters in the development of the program. So the voices are gonna be at the table from the beginning. 
assessing whether customers of low and moderate income really are being fairly served by this and how we might increase that equity. They're going to be in charge of identifying any actions we need to take to provide customers with better service and to mitigate any fuel price impacts that this, you know, that this bill might entail. Recommending additional programs. Rosie is super excited about this part of the bill. <laughs> you know, recommending additional programs. I mean, the, the equity component of the bill is really, really significant. And it sounds like a model for other bills, even for other bills. Yeah. And sorry, I did find the, the list of folks who will be on this commission mm. or the advisory group, which I think is really meaningful. So I know this is wonky, but I'm going to lead it. I'm going to read it to you. So the Department of Public Service, DCF, DCF's Office of Economic Opportunity, the Community Action Agencies. So over in my, uh, in my neck of the woods, that's Brock. Efficiency Vermont, individuals with, uh, who are uh, with socioeconomically, racially, and geographically diverse backgrounds, renters, rental property owners, the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, and a member of the Fuel Dealers Association. So I think that's, you know, that's a promising equity group. And they're going to be required to make sure that is, you know, if this goes into law and as it rolls out, that the way it's designed and the way it actually happens in the real world does not have the negative impact on folks that the fuel dealers are, are uh, you know, scaring people about right now. You know, and I just, I just want to say, uh, you know, everybody has the right, this is a democracy, right? Everybody has the right to lobby on this bill. So while I wasn't happy to see what I thought was an inaccurate 70 cent flyer in my heating bill, you know, I, I don't like scare tactics. I don't like misinformation. You know, everybody's voice needs to be at the table and we do need to hear from everybody on this so that we can design the best bill possible. I totally agree with you. I think there's a lot to discuss about this bill. I think even using marketing market mechanisms at all and cap and trade systems like we're using, there could be a lot of interesting debate about. But when we aren't using accurate information for these debates, as like, you know, at my town meeting this week, some people were not using accurate information for like debates around fairly tiny issues. And it the record wasn't being corrected. And I think when we do that, it means that we don't have the space to actually be debating what is true and what does matter. And then like, we're really all losing out from that because those debates need to happen. I just want to make sure that we remind happy hour listeners how a bill becomes a law. So in a little schoolhouse break intermission here, before we close up, I want to be clear, this bill originated in the Senate. The Senate committee worked on it muchly. It went to the Senate Appropriations Committee where they amended it muchly. And then it went to the the Senate floor where I believe there was an, perhaps another amendment on the floor, I'm not sure. And then it passed out of the Senate it did that before a crossover deadline. And so the House is planning to pick it up. It got referred from on first reading in the House to the Environment and Energy Committee in the House, where it will be debated again and muchly and likely amended because we all want to touch our little fingers all over everything <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and then it will again go to the Appropriations Committee in the House, where again, Fingers will touch it, and then it will come to the House floor for debate, possible amendments. If it passes from the House floor, then we'll go to the governor. 
the governor will have the options of either signing it into law or vetoing it or letting it pass without his signature, which is something that is not does not happen in every state, fascinatingly enough. Mm, um, that's not an option in all states. In many states, not signing is a veto. It's considered a pocket veto. That's what a pocket veto is, in case anyone ever. Anyway, and so, and then if the governor does veto it, which all signs point to yes on this one, mm -hmm. then it would need to come back to the House and Senate for a possible veto override vote, where we would need to have a two-thirds vote in order to override that veto in both the House and Senate you cannot amend a bill during a veto override. I skipped the conference committee part. Which I was going to say that was disturbing. You skipped the conference committee. I skipped part. the conference committee. I'm going to back up. Before it goes between the, sorry, if the House amends it and passes it, it has to go back to the Senate for them to either approve our amendments or offer further amendments. And that all has to be voted in the House or Senate. <laughs> Likely, if those two bodies can come to agreement, it goes to a committee of conference where the, a few people from each side debate it all, come up with a new bill, and then that bill needs to be voted on the House and Senate, but cannot be amended. Gotcha. And then it goes to all the governor stuff. So that was like a super failed schoolhouse rock. Sorry. <laughs> so when all is said and done, assuming that there's, you know, assuming or estimating or if there is a veto override, we're looking at June. Yes. And many people will have many conversations between now and then. Yeah. And then even if the bill passes, it will have a ramp up period. So it won't go into effect. Like we won't really see a lot of um, the changes until what, 2025? No, it would come back to the, it would get all built out over the next two years with a detailed cost benefit analysis and a zillion reports back to the legislature. Okay, not a zillion, I think three. <laughs> Then the whole thing would come back to the legislature for another round of voting in January 2025. And if it passes, then the bill would start phasing in in 2026. Gotcha. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. With a strong upfront, strong upfront focus on low and moderate income Vermonters. So a couple years out. Well, this is all the time we have on the happy hour today, but I want to thank Representative Kathleen James for joining us to talk about the Affordable Heat Act, AKA S5. Kathleen, if people want to learn more about you, where can they go? Oh, I have a website. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that URL, <laughs> no, I just think if they Google me, <laughs> kathjamesforstaterep.com. Great. kathjamesforstaterep.com. And then also, because I'm of a certain age, I, I'm more active on Facebook than Instagram. Mm -hmm. So that's a Kathleen James VT state representative. Okay. But if you Google, I just did it. If you Google Kathleen James Vermont, all of those things come up. Okay. Phew. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll also link to those in the show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, Great. Emily, if folks yes. want to find you, where can they go? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org to find my website and all of my social media, hooks, email, phone number, whatever works for you. Look forward to hearing from you. Wonderful. Thank you. And as always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour every Friday at 2 p.m. on WBEW 
107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, wherever you find your podcasts, as well as BCTV and many of, thanks to BCTV, many of the peg stations around Vermont. So everyone, 